Uh, we're doing a sermon series through the Gospel of John. We're going systematically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're now in John chapter 13. And um, I know we don't have the... Oh, we have to put it up because we're going to put the passage. Um, I know that we don't have the passage... You don't have the passage before you. But I will be referring to the text, um, especially in the second point. So it's John chapter 13, verse 31 through 38, if you want to have it on your phone with you. And so I believe it is printed. Um, let me read the text. Starting in verse 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of God. All right, now I'm going to... We're going to lose the the projector text. All right. Um... So, this passage marks the beginning of what theologians call the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse is the longest, it is the most sustained speech by Jesus in the Gospels. It stretches four and a half chapters, from the end of chapter 13, which we just read right now, all the way to chapter, to the end of chapter 17. And the climax of the discourse is Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, which is undoubtedly one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. You could think of it like this. If Romans chapter 8 is the Mount Everest of Scripture, then John 17 is the K2 of Scripture. And today we begin the ascent. Today we start at base camp. And in this speech, Jesus is explaining uh, uh, to his disciples, and really he's comforting them, because he has just dropped this bombshell, which is that he is going to depart from them. After three years of ministry together, after three years of living together and eating together, he is going to leave them. And the disciples are distraught when they hear this. I suppose it would be sort of like if one night I sat down for dinner with my family and I suddenly announced to them 
tonight I'm going to leave you. I'm going away on a trip and you're not going to see me for a long, long time. I can tell you that my boys, Judah and Noah, they would just burst into tears. They would be inconsolate. And so the disciples are shocked. They're confused. They're afraid. And I think beyond all of that, they don't understand what Jesus has just said because it's almost incomprehensible to them. Because remember, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king prophesied by Scripture who would come as this heroic warrior who would set all things right, who would restore the glory of Israel, and therefore, how could he leave them? How could he abandon them on the cusp of victory at the dawn of this new kingdom that he has been preaching about for three years? He's been saying the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. And now he's leaving. What is going on? This is a question not just for the disciples, but I want you to know this is a question for us as well. Because Jesus is not physically here with us. We can't see him. We can't touch him. And so, how can we follow him? Are we just following his memory? How can we have a relationship with him when he is absent from us? And as I said before, it takes Jesus four and a half chapters to unpack the answer. And there are many parts to it. But the heart of it is this. Jesus will send us His Spirit. That's the answer. And through His Spirit, Jesus is not far from us. He is near us. He is with us. In fact, He is in us. And mystery beyond all mysteries, He is with us more vividly more intimately than he was with his disciples during his earthly ministry. How can that be? But we are getting ahead of ourselves. We're only at the beginning of the answer. right? We're still at base camp. We haven't yet reached the peak. So, let's look at the passage. Here's my outline. Three points. Number one, we're going to look at the mission that Jesus gives his disciples, which is a mission of love. Number two, we're going to see the obstacle to fulfilling that mission, which is the weakness of human flesh. And then number three, we're going to look at how we can fulfill that mission, which is the glory of God. So, number one, the mission of love. So, Jesus tells his disciples that in his absence, they are to carry on the mission. If he is their commanding officer and he has to depart from them, he tells his men strict orders that they are to finish the mission. Under no conditions are they to neglect the mission. What is the mission? This is the critical question. The answer which will shape the rest of our lives. What is the mission? Jesus tells us the mission is to live a life of love. 
That's the mission. If you look at verse 34, I'll read it for you. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Not new because it's never been said, it's not found in scripture, but new in intensity, new in purpose. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is astonishing on several levels. First of all, it shows us the centrality of love in the Christian life. The centrality of love. These are Jesus' final words of instructions to his disciples. He says, love one another. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it over and over again. If you remember a few weeks ago, at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus starts the evening, he takes off his outer garments, he washes his disciples' feet, and then he says, I have set before you an example that you should love one another. And then, in John chapter 15, and we're going to get there in a few weeks, he has this extended passage where he says, greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. And so he's saying all of this in one evening. And so what does it mean when somebody keeps repeating themselves over and over again? They keep returning to the same theme. It means it's really important to them. It means it's essential. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. You see that we are to love one another is our identity. It's our calling card. Do you know why? Because, listen to me, God is love. God is love. In John 17, verse 24, we're going to get there. Jesus says, Father... You have loved me before the foundation of the world. He says, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? We are in deep waters now. What Jesus is saying is that before the world existed, before there was anything else, there was God. And inside the being of God, inside the life of of the Trinity, for eons and eons of eternity, God is a Father loving and adoring His Son, and God is a Son loving and honoring His Father. That's who God is. And if that's who God is, then love is the meaning of the universe. Love is the meaning of the universe because if God is love and we are created in His image, then the purpose of human existence is love. Don't you see that? The most important question that you can ask is what is the meaning of life? No one can live unless they have some kind of answer to that question, what is the meaning of life? 
If you want to try something fun, try this. The next time you're at work and there's a quiet moment with your coworker, I want you to turn to them and I want you to say to them, what do you think is the meaning of life? I'm sorry, am I having feedback here? Um, so turn to them and say, um, what is the meaning of life? And they will say, what did you ask me? <laughs> and you can say to them, no, seriously, I mean it. What do you think is the meaning of life? And maybe they'll have some kind of answer, or maybe um, they'll sort of hem and haw and hedge their bets, and then they'll say to you, well, what do you think is the meaning of life? And you can say to them, with absolute certainty. The meaning of life is love. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what Christianity is teaching us. The meaning of life is to love God and to love one another. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. So that's the first point, the centrality of love in the Christian life. The second The second uh, thing I want to address is a practical question, which is, well, what is love? What does love look like? And here it's really interesting. The word that Jesus uses in the passage, um, as as many of you may know, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. And the thing is, in the Greek language, they don't have one generic word for love like we do in the English, which sort of captures all the different varieties and kinds of love. In the Greek language, there are four different words, four different um, descriptions or four different uh, kinds of love. And the the best book that I've ever read on this is C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, which is a fantastic book. It is one of his best books, um, one of the best books on the Christian life. I highly recommend it. But in the Greek language, there are, are four different words for love. And the first word is storge. Storge means love for family, love for your country. It's a very earthly love. It's love for your own. This is the love that a mother feels for her newborn child. This is the love that um, a little child feels for her parents. This is the love that you have for your fellow soldiers as you're in the foxhole fighting a battle, okay? So it's love for your own people, storge. The second word is philia. Philia is friendship love. This is the love that is born out of really good conversation. This is the love uh, when you find somebody who shares your interests and passions. This is the love that says to somebody... I thought I was the only one. You too, right? And you feel this incredible kinship and connection. And so there's this mutual admiration, mutual respect. The third Greek word for love is eros. It's where we get the English word erotic. Eros is romantic love. This is the love that is very passionate, right? It inspires love poems. It, um, it's what you fall into, right? It kind of makes you crazed, right? It's like 
There's sexual chemistry and frisson, right? It's, it's passionate, kissy love. There's a fourth word, um, which the Greeks had, which is the word agape. Now, agape, the best translation for agape is charity, benevolence, compassion. And agape, unlike the other three loves, because you see, the other three loves are natural loves. You don't have to try very hard to to do them. You're just sort of naturally drawn to the object of your love, right? There's, There's an attraction pulling you to them. But agape, agape love is the love that you give to the unlovely. This is the love that you give to lepers and criminals and strangers. And in verse 34, when Jesus says, love one another, which of the four Greek words do you think Jesus uses? He doesn't say eros, okay, because that's inappropriate. Do not eros love one another in the, in the church. Um, you should only eros love one other person, your spouse or your romantic partner, okay? But storge, which is family love, and philia, which is friendship love, makes sense. It would fit, would it not? Jesus does not say storge or philia. He says agape. He says, I want you to agape love one another. Now, what does it mean to agape love one another? This is a love full of grace and forgiveness. This is a love that endures weakness and sin in the beloved. This is why Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. This is divine love, full of mercy. Now, why does Jesus ask us to love one another like that? Again, why not storge? The church, after all, is a family. Why not philia? Right? Are we not among Christian friends? In fact, that's one of the purposes for CG, so that you can cultivate and find friends in the church. And so we should want, we should cultivate storge love, philia love in the church, And it's wonderful. And there is storge and philia in the church. But I want you to know that in the end, they are not strong enough. They're not strong enough to hold the church together. Because the church is not based on natural ties. But instead, the church brings together people from all different kinds of backgrounds, different life experiences, um, different personality types. Do you know why? Because the church is not just a social phenomenon. It's not just a fad that only appeals to a certain demographic, but the gospel is the eternal truth which draws and attracts all different kinds of human beings. Now listen to me. That by itself would be hard enough. But on top of that, because we're living in such intense and deep community, I want you to know there's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be miscommunication. And there's going to be sin. You and I, 
we are going to sin against one another because the church is not a museum of saints. It is a hospital for sinners. One of the greatest passages on love is 1 Corinthians 13. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, My wife, Christina, she made our boys memorize 1 Corinthians 13, and on occasion we will ask them to recite it to one another. And it's a very famous passage. (laughs) I guess that was a delayed joke, right? Um, It's a very famous passage. Love is kind. Love is patient. It does not envy. It does not boast. And at the end of the passage... This is what it says. Listen. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And when we got to that passage, when we got to that verse, my boys asked me, Daddy, what does that mean? What does it mean that love always believes? It always hopes. Here's the answer. Love always yearns for reconciliation. Love never writes somebody off. Love never says, that person is hopeless. I'm done with them. That person can never change. How do you know that, by the way? Instead, love is always ready to re-engage. It is always ready to be surprised by the grace of God working in their life. And so love never closes the door to a broken relationship. Now, it's very important that I clarify something, so please listen to me now. That does not mean that you allow the person to abuse you again. And the best book that I've ever read on this is Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's a fantastic book. I think every Christian should read it. It's a book about reconciliation, forgiveness, conflict in the church. And Ken Sandy says that if someone has sinned against you, if someone has wronged you in a serious way, okay, we're not talking about something relatively minor that you can overlook, But if they sinned against you in a serious way, then, Ken Sandy says, it would be wrong. In fact, it would not be loving to allow them to violate you again. And therefore, love means drawing boundaries. Love means holding them accountable. And sometimes... Holding them accountable means that they have to go to prison. Sometimes the most loving thing is that the person goes to prison. So you have to hold them accountable. You have to demand change in their life because without change in a broken relationship, the pattern continues and the relationship can never truly be healed. But at the same time, here's what love means. You can never write the person out of your life. You can never say, I will never deal with them again. You know why? Because love always, it always hopes. It always holds out a hand in friendship. 
It always keeps open the door to reconciliation and restoration. Love is like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember him? He's standing there. He's waiting. And he's waiting for his wayward son to return. And when his son returns, he celebrates. Love never stops believing. It never gives up the possibility that the relationship can be healed. And I want you to know that when you love like that, and when both sides are loving like that, with that kind of tenacity and resilience, a love that absorbs sin and disappointment, then that love, and only that love, will preserve the fellowship and the unity of the church. Otherwise, the church is just a social club. And we're just hanging, hanging out with each other until the times get tough. And then our love is just like the world's love. What difference is there? Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. This is the distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's the first point, the mission of love. The second point, the weakness of human flesh. So here we're going to focus on Peter's story. It's a dramatic story, and it's really the heart of this passage. So in verse 36, this is what Peter says. He says, Lord, where are you going? Now, it's really interesting. Jesus does not give Peter a direct answer. He does what he usually does, which is he addresses the objection behind the question. But the answer to the question, by the way, is that Jesus is going to the Father. He is returning to the life of the Trinity that he had before his incarnation, before he was born. Which is a huge answer. And it's going to take us four and a half chapters to fully unpack the layers and layers behind that. But here's Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 36, listen to this. He says, Where I am going... You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. So Jesus says, Peter, you cannot follow me now. Why not? Because Jesus is going to the Father through the cross. Jesus is leaving his disciples so that he can make a way for us to go to the Father And the only way to the Father is through the death of His Son. This is the unique, redemptive work that Jesus Christ came to do. The disciples cannot participate. But then Jesus adds, You will follow me afterward. Do you hear that? Jesus will not be absent from us forever, but one day we will join Him. But in the meantime, there is a delay. And in that delay... Jesus gives us a mission to complete. What is that mission? We've already talked about it. It is to love one another earnestly and to make disciples of all nations. And then we will be with the Lord. That's the answer. That's amazing. Now go. No. That's not enough for Peter. And in verse 37, he says, listen to this. He says, Lord... Why can't I follow you now? And then he adds, listen to this, 
I will lay down my life for you. You see, Peter is still thinking in terms of a worldly Messiah. And so Peter thinks that Jesus is going away on some dangerous military mission. And that's why Peter can't follow him. And so Jesus is saying something like, Peter, it's too dangerous for you. Too risky. You can't follow me. Which Peter takes as a kind of personal challenge. And he says, Lord, I can come. I can do it. I'm worthy of this mission. I will fight for you. And by the way, he means it. You have to remember, at this time, Peter is strapping a sword, which he will use later that night to cut off the servant's ear when the guards come to arrest him. So Peter is ready for armed combat. And then Peter adds, I will lay down my life for you. Those two last words, do you notice? Peter doesn't just say, Jesus, I'm going to die with you. I'm going to die alongside of you. He says, I'm going to die for you. He's saying, Jesus, you don't have to die. Whatever this dangerous mission that you're going on, I'm not going to let you die because I'm going to die In your place, I'm going to take the bullet for you. This reveals Peter's heart. Peter thought that he was Jesus' disciple because of how strong he was. He was more savvy, more resourceful, more capable than all the other recruits. And in fact, he thought he was a cut above the rest of the disciples. He thought... He was the greatest of the disciples. In Matthew 26, verse 33, which is a parallel passage, Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Peter fundamentally thought of his relationship to Jesus in terms of what he brought to the table, his strength, his devotion, his capabilities. I want to um, share a personal story. Um, so, I heard the call to pastoral ministry when I was in college. And college for me was a really intense time of spiritual growth. I came to discover the gospel in a really fresh and powerful way. And the gospel to me was so beautiful that I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life telling people about it. I wanted to teach people about Christianity. And I really came to love doing ministry. But I want you to know that along with those good motivations was also a lot of pride and and glory-seeking because the honest reality is that the honest reality is that you get a lot of strokes. You get a lot of admiration when you're a ministry leader. And when I was um, in my campus fellowship, I was one of the ministry leaders, and um, people, knowing that I read a lot of theology books, they would give me a lot of esteem. They would they would say a lot of positive comments. And that was very gratifying. 
And so mixed in with true devotion was a lot of spiritual pride. And Christina reminded me the other day. She she said, you know, when I first met you, when we first started dating, she said, I remember that you once boasted, and this is going to sound a little crazy, um, but I had once boasted that because I had read so much, because I thought I had so much insight, um, I thought I could write an epistle <laughs> that could be included in the New Testament. <laughs> not a major epistle, mind you. Not like Romans or Ephesians, right? That's crazy. But a minor epistle, like Jude. <laughs> Or Philemon, you know, like a one-chapter epistle. I really thought highly of myself. Which is why I was so angry with God when I subsequently experienced significant setbacks and delays in ministry. And I had to work and uh, save money for three years before... I finally went to seminary. And that whole time, as I was working at Walgreens, I have to tell you, I was seething. I was so angry with God. Because I thought God was wasting my time. I was like, God, don't you want me out there serving you? And so I had these conflicting emotions, right? I wanted to serve God, but I was so angry with God. I felt like, God, don't you know what I'm offering to you? Why are you keeping me on the sidelines? And so that was my attitude. And I think this was Peter's attitude as well. Peter said, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Do you hear the spiritual self-confidence? But Peter was wrong. And in verse 38, Jesus says, Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, it's important here to get the tone right. Jesus is not saying, Peter, you coward, you weakling, I can't depend on you. He's not trying to shame Peter. He's not trying to tear Peter down. He's building Peter up. He's dealing with Peter's root sin, which is his self-sufficiency and spiritual pride. He's showing Peter that he is far worse than he could possibly imagine about himself. And at the same time, he is more deeply loved than he could ever dare hope. Because you have to remember, the backdrop to this whole story is that Peter goes on to become one of the leaders of the New Testament church. In fact, and it's kind of amazing, in fact, he becomes the pillar, the cornerstone of the church. He becomes the greatest of the disciples. Not in spite of his failures, but listen to me, but because of his failures. His failures was formative. 
In John chapter 21, it's an amazing passage. We're going to get there, I don't know, in a couple of years. But in John 21, this is after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says this three times to echo the three times that Peter had denied him. And Peter responds, and in his answer, gone is the boasting and the comparison. He doesn't say, Lord, I love you more than these schmucks. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. And when you read the text, by the time he gets to the third answer, you see that he's weeping. Because you see, it's a confession. He's saying, Lord, I'm a failure. I completely and totally failed you. And do you know what Jesus says? He says, feed my sheep. He entrusts Peter with ministry. He could have said, that's it. You blew it. I'm never going to trust you again. But he restores Peter. And that experience of radical grace, radical forgiveness, transforms Peter forever. I want you to know the only way, the only way that you can be useful to God is that you have to recognize your neediness for Him. The only way that you can serve God, the only way that you could be useful in the kingdom of God is you have to realize the depths of your sins, and you have to cry out to God for His mercy. Because it is not through your strength that you serve, but it is through your weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Do you know what a jar of clay is? It's this fragile, absolutely breakable thing. And God puts in this fragile, fragile, breakable thing, which is us, the greatest treasure, which is the work of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay, listen to this, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. And here I want to speak to the ministry leaders of the church. It is so easy, and I know this because... I'm a professional ministry leader. It is so easy to serve God by your strength and not by His strength. It is so easy because it's just so much more efficient to rely on your natural talents, your natural gifts. But in the end, prayer is absent in your life. But Jesus says in John 15, you can only bear fruit if you abide in him. Because he is the vine and we are the branches. We have no life in ourselves. I know that some of you are going through an extended period of spiritual dryness in your life. I know this because I've spoken to so many of you. God feels so distant it feels like God is not present in your life. 
and you want to quit. You want to quit the church. You want to quit being a Christian. Can I tell you where to get the power for ministry? Listen to me. The power for ministry is repentance. It's repentance. It comes from falling on your knees and confessing your sins, confessing your self-dependence, that you live your life as if you don't really need a Savior, to confess your callous heart, your neglect for the things of God, and then to receive His mercy. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God could only use you if you're humble. And I want you to know this applies not just for ministry in the church, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know all of life is ministry. All of life. Your work is ministry. What do you think you're doing? Are you going just to make money and to pursue your personal ambitions? No. Your workplace, you're serving God. Parenting is ministry. Your marriage is it's the ultimate ministry. If you don't understand that, then you're not going to be able to endure the difficult times. And you could only do ministry with gospel power, not with human power. That leads me to the third point. Where do we get this power? The glory of God. In verse 31, let me read it to you. Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. There's so much there. Let me just say one thing. Jesus is talking about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The answer is this little word that Jesus uses at the beginning. He says, now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. It's very different. It's the first time he uses that temporal marker, now. Every other time, previously, he's always said, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But here he changes it. He says, now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. What is he talking about? He's talking about the death of the Son. He's talking about going to the cross. He says, God is glorified in the death of his Son. I want you to think about that for a moment. I think it's so amazing that God, that God's glory shines most brilliantly not in the light of a, of a trillion stars and the, and the vast expanses of the universe which God, which God created with His Word, not in His limitless knowledge by which He can perceive all mysteries, not in His eternal existence in which there is no tomorrow or yesterday for God, but all time is always present before Him. In all these things, greater than that, God's glory shines in the death of the Son. I want to close with a story. There was once a man. There was once a man who lived with his family high up in the mountains. And the man's job was that he operated a railroad bridge over a mountain pass in which there was a river. And every time there was a boat he would have to raise the bridge. And every time there was a train, he would lower the bridge. That was his job. 
One day, he was out working on the bridge, doing maintenance work, when suddenly he heard in the distance the sound of an approaching train. He was greatly surprised. There was no train scheduled for that day. Now, this was a time when there was no technology that would allow him to communicate with the train. And so he absolutely had to lower the bridge or else the train would plummet to its death. And so he rushed to the operating room to lower the bridge. But when he got there, he looked down and he saw that his young son was playing in the gears of the bridge. These are the giant gears that allow the bridge to be raised and lowered. He called out to his son. He shouted and screamed with all of his might. But his son could not hear him above the roar of the river. And he realized that in that moment, he had to make a choice. Either his son would have to die, or the hundreds of passengers on the train would have to die. There was no other way. He decided to lower the bridge. And because his son perished, the passengers on that train, their lives were saved that day. I want you to know that that story is a dim echo of the true story, the greatest story, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel. I want you to know that we will never exhaust the riches and the depths of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. I want you to go and meditate on that. I want you to think about it and think about it until it melts your heart. And then God can use you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Psalm 51, it says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Heavenly Father, we confess our cold hearts. Because deep down inside, we feel like, although we are sinners, our sins are small and far between. And we don't realize we are big sinners. And our sins compound. And we can never repay them. And this is why, because we don't know the depths of our sins, our love for you is small. It's a small love. Lord, give us a broken and contrite heart. Help us to see 
the deep, deep depths, the pit in which we're in, and the heights of your love that you reached down through the death of your Son and you rescued us. And we pray that from that transformation and forgiveness, you would use us for your kingdom. Help us to love one another just as you loved us. We pray this in Christ's name.